Hi folks, I'm Alan Watts and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on the 25th of March 2011. I'll get it out the way as I always do for newcomers. Look into CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com website and help yourself to the audios which are all available for free download. And remember to all those sites listed on the com page there are the official sites. They all carry uh, transcripts as well in English uh, of a lot of the talks I've given, not all of them, but a lot of them. And uh, you can download those for print-up too. And if you want ones in other languages, go into Alan AlanWattSentinel.eu, which is also on the com site there on the front page. And you'll find a variety to choose from, a variety of other languages to choose from for print-up. So help yourselves. And uh, remember, too, you're, you're the audience that bring me to you because I don't bring on uh, sponsors and uh, I don't bring on guests who sell because that's how hosts generally make their money uh, from these people. But uh, I'm going on a different road, of course. It's a suicide road, really. But again, I, as I say, I belong to Scotland. That's the champion of lost causes. And uh, you always have a bit of faith in humanity, hopefully, uh, that they'll listen to something which um, doesn't go through the usual sales pitch after terrifying people. That's a sad truth in business, but that's how it's done. And I prefer not to, to do it. The ads you hear in this show are paid by advertisers directly to uh, RBN for this show. This program, I should say, and it pays for their broadcast time and their staff and equipment and their bills. So help me out with mine. You can buy the books and discs I have for sale at cuttingthroughmatrix.com. From the U.S. to Canada, you can also use a personal check or international postal money order, or you can use PayPal, and you'll see the button on the, the, the com site. Um, if you do an order, just use the button and follow it with an email and your address in order, and I'll get it out to you. And some people just send cash. Uh, across the world, you've got Western Union, MoneyGram, and again, PayPal to order through the donation button. And also, straight donations, believe you me, are certainly, certainly welcome, uh, because this is expensive, and it's not a, a one-hour. People think I, I do nothing but one-hour show every day. It's not a one-hour show or even talk educational talk. It's a, an all-day effort, and it's seven days a week as you keep up on everything that's happening, and go beyond it even, because more important, you realize what the big picture happens to be, not the little bits you get out of news. They're, they're trying to keep it all unrelated. So, it helped me out, as I say, and hopefully we can go on for a bit longer. Uh, we talk about this, it's not just an emerging world order, that George Bush Sr. talked about, and lots have talked about it since, heads of state and so on. It's a completely new way of living, a restructuring of the whole world, its systems into one system, uh, under the guise of democracy, although they're telling us, the same guys are telling us in Orwellian terminology, that we're post-democratic, and that the system they're bringing in now is authoritarian. It actually already is authoritarian, and has been openly since 9-11 happened in most countries across the world. 
and they have a lot more plans to bring about because this is a very old agenda. It took centuries in the making. You'll find hints of it in old philosophers that existed around the 1700s, 1800s, into the 20th century, who like to scribble about their big plans for the future and how they'd bring out a, a practical way that everyone should live, uh, run by experts and scientists, as they destroyed the old religions that had to go. They usually called them superstitions, and they said that scientists would take over the proper way that we should be ruled, basically, uh, with also the basic understanding that the common people were simply too ignorant to rule their own lives uh, in peace and quiet or safety. Back with more after this break. Hi folks, we're back, cutting from the Matrix and talking about this world that's not just coming into view, as Papa Bush said, but it's actually here. And we've been living through the, the new authoritarian system with so many laws getting pushed from a federal level uh, right down to the local levels, just one after another. You can't keep up with it. And I mean that literally. There's so many you can't keep up with when you see what's happening across the board. And I mean in any country either. It's hap- they're all happening in sequence across the world. These same laws come out. And, of course, there's obviously a, a, an operating head that thinks it all out and panels that meet together internationally to decide to go ahead with the same system in every level of, of government or governance, as you like to call it these days. And there is, of course, there's no doubt about it, and we know we're under a system that, that comes through something called the United Nations that was set up really at the end of World War II, and it's now taken over pretty well all lawmaking abilities and through treaties, binding treaties, they call them, and the politicians that you elect have been signing agreements with more and more treaties for years to implement them, all the way from building codes to water runoffs to all kinds of things, and even putting down the set fines that we should get across the whole world if we don't comply. They can actually fine whole countries, even through various trade organ like the World Trade Organization. If uh, your country or a private corporation fails to let another country come in and pay below the minimum wage, wage rates for your people, if you say, well, you can't come in here because of that, they can actually fine you. And it's happened already, and our Countries are using our tax money to pay the massive fines. Britain especially has been hit with one after another because they've got the World Trade Organization and they have the EU Super Parliament on top of them too. So this is what's called uh, the just fair society where the big rod just hits the guy at the bottom and you just pay up. Uh, And that's what government really is. Government is force, of course. And so is law. They run through what they call law or they pretend to run through law and um, they use force. Uh, first is intimidation to comply, and then force is applied if you don't comply, if you don't, if, if intimidation doesn't mean you go along. So that's what it's always been about. And we're trained like animals really, with lots of uh, neuroscientists working along with governments today. They've been working along with them for years before they call them neuroscientists. And the, the big marketing companies have been working hand in glove prior to that because they're the experts on human behavior and mass psychology. And it's worked very well for them, in fact. 
That's why all your government propaganda comes through these expert companies. Now, Japan, of course, we know it's been an absolute uh, horror there, and we know it's going to unfold as time goes on to be a much bigger horror, uh, as they stated at first. And damage control is always that way. They minimize the damage and they minimize the, the human collateral, as we beings are now called, and they try and cover it up as much as they can. You know, they do that in every country because all these countries are signed under uh, the International Treaty Organization at the United Nations. They're really in charge of all propaganda and what leaks out to the public and what's kept back from them. Uh, it would be no different if, if these things went off in your own uh, backyard and uh, in any country. It would be the same sort of way of, of controlling the crisis. You never tell the public the truth. Actually, we're so far removed from any kind of government, uh, even your federal governments, they, ha- they can't tell us the truth now on anything. They, they don't even expect to tell. In fact, that's why they hire the marketers to make sure they change the wording and so on to get the public to go along with any new thing that, that's rammed down your way. And also in cri- times of disaster, they bring in these same guys who, like Wag the Dog, excellent movie to see, will find new ways to put things across to the public to deceive them, keep them working, as always, even if technically you know that they're, they're going to die shortly. But this, art, this article came in today, and it says, um, Japanese officials have expressed alarm over a possible fracture of a reactor core at one unit of the troubled Fukushima nuclear power plant. It says the safety officials raised the possibility of more severe environmental contamination on Friday with the latest announcement on the, the country's nuclear crisis. It's possible that somewhere at the reactor, uh, some, some part of the reactor may have been damaged. Well, who's kidding who? The, the roofs blew off the things ages ago. But anyway, it says, uh, he added, however, our data suggests the reactor means uh, uh, certain containment functions. So it's a little bit's working, he says, meaning maybe not all the rods are spent up or maybe the basin that holds them is still intact or whatever. But really, I don't think any of these things are safe at all after these explosions, uh, etc. You cannot stand that kind of heat from uh, from uh, cores going into fusion uh, once they're uncovered with water because it, I don't care what they make this, their surrounding shell out of, it's going to crack or melt or whatever. Anyway... It says that damage could have been done to the core when on March 14th, hydrogen explosion blew up uh, Unit 3 outer containment building. This reactor, perhaps most troubled, the six-unit site holds 170 tons of radioactive fuel in its core. Previous radioactive emissions have come from international uh, intentional efforts to vent small amounts of steam through valves to prevent the core from bursting. And the steam, of course, is radioactive in itself. However, releases from a, a, a breach could allow uncontrolled quantities of radioactive contaminants to escape into the surrounding ground or air. Reports indicate that a number of Japanese people, now listen to this, remember that silly 30-kilometer uh, border that they told folk to get behind? Reports indicate that a number of Japanese people who live between 200 and 350 kilometers away from the plant have been hospitalized for exposure to radioactive materials. So this stuff really... It doesn't respect man-made little imaginary lines anywhere. It goes which way the wind blows, and that's obviously what's been happening. And we know that too because uh, last week on, on Friday, the radiation hits uh, the Americas and Canada, and then, of course, it, by the Sunday, it was moving or reported from the French uh, monitoring agencies that this radioactive cloud had then moved across Canada, and it was also into the Atlantic on its way to Europe. 
So it's been going on this constant band. It still is going on right now. It hasn't stopped uh, all the way from Japan. And uh, it, 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 some reports have actually said it might con- it cover the whole northern hem- hemisphere eventually. And it's probably true. It says, uh, March the 11th witnessed an extremely fatal earthquake, etc., etc., and goes through the history of it. But this is, uh, what's happening now is much, much worse, as I say, because uh, the ones with plutonium in them, the so-called spent rods, are highly, highly dangerous because they've been recharged, you might say. These were spent rods that have been used before and then recharged back up again. These are the ones that produce plutonium, and then you end up with those things going up and you get strontium-19, a whole bunch of awfully, even worse, nasty things, if you can imagine it. Worse than that. And um, a lot of folk over the years are going to die with this. And, and they know it too. And there have been a lot of genetic malformalities uh, coming out as time goes on too. It's di- absolute disastrous. And um, there was an accident waiting to happen because they know, never mind the fault lines and all the rest of it, they also know that this particular type of General Electric uh, Mark I is very unsafe and uh, uh, it's a very thin shell, both the container and the outer shell are far too thin in structure to contain anything that happens. It tends, to, once it shuts down due to a quake or any other reason, they've got a hard time getting the water restarted because of various um, valves blocking and, and so on. And they've known this for years and years and years. But they're privately owned and today corporations rule the world, so they threw governments that they, that they put in there, so it's pretty well the same all over. And as I say, the Greenies will make a, a, a beauty of this one because they'll demand the, the reactors across the world get closed down. And that ties right in with uh, the austerity plan because you've got to understand, especially in people who think they're in first world countries, who just uh, turn on the lights and there they are. Uh, the way that they want to take you is down to these uh, rolling blackout type services across the whole planet where what little electricity you'll have on and off will cost you about a thousand times what you're paying now through these silly windmill gizmos they have up there, which maybe can supply one-third of the country's needs if you put enough of many, many thousands of them up. But their maintenance also takes away from the profits, so they'd have to jack up the profits an awful lot to make it worth their while, which they will, of course. So it's amazing, as I say, the Copenhagen meeting, uh, really they needed something like this to happen to to make... Uh, you understand, too, the public's going to finance these windmills. Well, we are financing them for private companies. And it's the same big boys who own the nuclear reactors, all energy. See, companies are energy companies. They own reactors. Uh, they see the wind changing. They know when it's time to go into wind power, especially when government literally is giving out massive grants or gifts to them. And they're already changing over into the, their new way as they let the old ones eventually go. But it's going to be quite the transformation uh, as folks start panicking. And, and they've been living next to reactors their whole lives and never really noticed them until now. And they'll use, but that's nevertheless, the picture's worth, worth a thousand words in terror and fear. Certainly augment that, and they will demand the dismantling of the current uh, nuclear uh, stations. Without our thinking of the consequences down the road, transition periods, etc., into new systems, what sacrifices are you willing to make? as these transitions occur, and never mind looking into the cost of what the electricity will be down the road when they're allowed to get it. Everything is politics and pressure groups, isn't it? And um, 
corporations, as I say, uh, this is the new corporate world, and Professor Quigley and others talked about this new feudal system where the CEOs of corporations will be the new feudal overlords. They already are. Uh, they're the only ones really who have access to governments apart from the from the big foundations and, and bankers, NGOs. Uh, we have a hard time getting to talk to a member of parliament, and uh, we're just the little people now, really little people. There's no pretense about that anymore. And um, they used to call this fascism when you had uh, government in bed with corporations. Well, yes, it's fascism. It doesn't matter what else they want to call it, it's fascism. And technically all systems are fascist, even when the Soviets had their one in, it was still technically run in a fascist system. Wherever you get a massive class at the top of intergenerational bureaucrats, you've, you've got it there in big business. Back with more after this. Hi folks, I'm back and we're cutting through the matrix. People, Some people think the world's just going mad, but there's nothing mad about all of this really, uh, because everything always fits in with the big agenda to the, the big plan that's already been made of how the world's supposed to live. And say Copenhagen couldn't have wished for something better than this to happen to get their massive uh, agreements through and all the funding they want to get through. Uh, and, of course, they're pushing through their carbon taxes system to Australia. started that off already, although there's people protesting uh, in Australia, uh, grassroots organizations that literally came out at the last minute, this ordinary folk who have been really protesting this farce of being forced to pay just because you exist. And that's what it really boils down to, this new economy that the Rothschilds, uh, frontman, uh, I don't know if it was Rifkin, uh, talked about that they wanted. This would be the next market for the stock market and uh, they're looking forward and rub their hands to breaking in trillions of dollars every year or the fact that well you just purchase things and um, energy taxes and how much did it cost it to make that item how much CO2 was created and all these silly mathematical equations which means sweet damned all that they work out the, the price to be, to be that you have to pay but nothing, as I say, is really mad in the system because if it was truly mad, the big agenda would not be going on. Now, we know in the New American Century, for instance, uh, that was in the 90s, they published on their own site that they wanted to take out a whole bunch of countries, starting with, with uh, Afghanistan and then uh, Iraq. They talked about uh, Libya uh, and Syria as well and uh, Iran. And they, of course, followed pretty well the order that went through so far when Mr. Bush was in, and Obama's taken over the exact same schedule. And that's why Rumsfeld thanked him a few weeks ago for not changing the schedule and, and the, the countries that would be taken down. And it's astonishing, really, to, to live through this, watching the, the blatant um, plans be made in the 90s. Israel agreed with the same, exact same planned agenda. They also mentioned Syria, too. And now you're finding agitation in Syria. And it's taken years to plan all this from within and to get it all rolling. But uh, it's, it's astonishing, as I say. And General Wesley Clark has given an interview with, what I think, Democracy Now. I think it gets funded by the, the, the Rockefeller Foundation. But anyway... Um, he does admit in 2007 about the same list and the same agenda 
and he's up on YouTube, and I'll put the link up tonight for that, where you'll hear him talking in his own words about this particular agenda, including Syria and Libya and all the rest of it. And that they were simply carrying on, really. And I might try and dig out the American century list from the 90s. I think it was 97 was the last one they drew up. To show you that we're living through a big business plan, and all the slaughter that's going on was pre-planned, collateral damage and all that. The, the fighters on the ground, regardless of sides, are, are incidental to these boys. They don't really care. They have their eyes set on oil and uh, water. Water's going to be massively expensive when the private corporations take over the water in Libya, for sure, with its underwater uh, springs, aqueducts, massive thing. So that's going to be, again, part of the, the future. All resources have been taken over by big corporations. Right on track again. And no one really cares as they're watching Japan. It's, it, it, so many laws are being rammed through. I, could, I can't believe just today looking at different laws being rammed through Canada and different countries. All at the same time, right down to local level, while everyone's distracted with what's going on. It's, it's just an, uh, amazing, truly amazing. And also with... Um, this, the Al-Qaeda stuff. I mean, we know darn well, it came out at the, t- the time after 9-11 uh, that uh, some experts from the CIA came out and said Al-Qaeda really was a rough... Uh, it's actually, it was actually a, 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 like a code term they used for communicating to each other all the forces that the CIA had set up to fight the Soviet Union. And it wasn't a, an organization as such. It was many different uh, uh, groups all involved and they used Al-Qaeda as a sort of a call, I mean, it's a calling signal, I might say, through uh, the various communication devices they had to communicate with each other. And Brzezinski, of course, I, I might even put that up again too, where he, he, you'll see him talking back in the, the, the 80s or 70s, I think it was the 80s, where he was talking to Afghanistanis, telling them that to go and fight against the Soviets, it would be a holy war, he called it a holy jihad, in his own words. And he's a geopolitician. They, they, they work out the plan like a chessboard, and uh, get country to fight country uh, to take all the supposedly their enemies down and clear the way for their big business to follow in and, and grab all the resources. And we also find confirmation of this whole Al-Qaeda CIA thing. Of course, the CIA did start up so many of the jihadi groups and they actually hyper-Islamized uh, them too, you might say. They had special the tracks printed up and kept focusing on them and teaching groups out there to make them really radical Muslims to fight the Soviets. Well, now you're left with the problem afterwards, whether it's still rather radical. And it says here, Libyan rebel commander admits his fighters have al-Qaeda links. So these wonderful freedom fighters that, that are not insurgents, of course, because the, the, the UN wants to, to protect these guys. Otherwise, they'd call them insurgents. And, you know, they're um, freedom fighters, you understand. This is an interview with Italian newspaper Il Sol 24 or and Mr. Al-Hasidi admitted that he had recruited about 25 men from the Derna area in eastern Libya to fight against coalition troops in Iraq. Some of them, he said, are today uh, are on the front lines in Ajibaya. It says, Mr. Al-Hasidi insisted his fighters are patriots and good Muslims, not terrorists, but added that the members of Al-Qaeda are also good Muslims and are fighting against the invader. So he's a guy who works with the CIA in the past. You'll find out why after we come back from this break.
You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth. Hi, folks. We're back cutting through the matrix and reading an article where a particular Mr. Al-Hasidi talks about Al-Qaeda working alongside the so-called freedom fighters for Libya, I guess the Muslim Brotherhood and so on, and they're all, all in it together, but uh, they've got a sort of cordial relationship right now with, this, with the Pentagon and the CIA. It just shows it's all farce, isn't it? But it says here that uh, he, Mr. Hasidi, was a member of the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group, or LIFG, which killed dozens of Libyan troops in guerrilla attacks around Derna and Benghazi in 1995-96. Even though the LIFG is not part of the Al-Qaeda organization, the United States Military West Point Academy has said the two share an increasingly cooperative relationship. In 2007, documents captured by Allied forces from the town of Sinjar showed LIFG members made up the second largest cohort of foreign fighters in Iraq after Saudi Arabia. And it says, earlier this month, Al-Qaeda issued a call for supporters to back the Libyan rebellion, which is said would lead to the imposition of the stage of Islam in the country. Now, who do you think set up the Islamic Brotherhood organization? A lot of the followers won't know it themselves. And uh, you'll find, of course, it's, it's usual, again, MI6 boys and so on, CIA, who start up these fraternities, promise them the world, use them, and then they do the nasty on them. But those followers always get technically what they deserve, unfortunately. It's the same all through the system of life. If you don't really know what you're being guided into and who's going to benefit from it and who's really uh, communicating with outside foreigners like CIA, MI6, then you better bet your bottom dollar that uh, it's going to be a dirty deal. Anyway, British Islamists have also backed a rebellion with the former head of the band al Muhajirun, it says, proclaiming that the call for Islam, the Sharia and Jihad from Libya had shaken the enemies of Islam and the Muslims more than the tsunami that Allah sent against their friends, the Japanese. So, it's quite something else. You know, it's, it's so, the, the, the spook world of spies, the spook world of spies is so full of deceit and, and stings and counter stings and all the rest of it and things going on that you're hard-pressed to follow what really is going on. And even when the mainstream media present you with an Al-Qaeda front, a nasty group and all the rest of it, the very front group that was set up by them in their first place against the Soviets, I don't think they ever really break the bonds at all. And uh, they'll use anybody they can use, and they do love groups, pre-existing groups too, and they certainly do love fraternities. Every nation has its fraternities, all with the same symbology, signals, and all the rest of it. And that's quite something. And I remember reading about the British Army going into India, and they were astounded in the 1700s that the traveling Masonic lodges to find out that every major town in India had Masonic lodges there already. They had no clue that this was across the world. And again, that's how people are kept in the dark. Quite something, isn't it? And... An article here, too, is about Gaddafi himself and a speech he made at the United Nations in 2009. And it says here, the address was made by Colonel Mahar al-Gaddafi, leader of the revolution of the socialist people's Libyan Arab, Jamah Yahira. It says, 
The Assembly will now hear an address by the leader of the revolution of the Socialist People's Libyan Arab Jamahira. It says Colonel Mohammar al-Qaddafi, leader of the revolution of the Socialist People's Libyan Arab, was escorted into the General Assembly Hall. And then they spoke with the translator, and uh, this is what Gaddafi says. He says, In the name of the General Assembly at its 64th session, presided over by Libya of the African Union. Remember, too, this global system, is they want unions, like an African Union, European Union, American Union, and Far Eastern Pacific Union, set up long ago in Karl Marx's day, by the way. And again, you see it re-emerging with the Milner Group that became the Royal Institute of International Affairs, which still runs the show yet through the CFR. Anyway, that's what they wanted, and we're almost there. This is the last part of it to be done, really. But it says here, uh, of 1,000 traditional African kingdoms, and in my own name, I'd like to take this opportunity as president of the African unions to congratulate our son, Obama, because he's attending the General Assembly, and we welcome him as his country is hosting uh, this meeting. It says, the session is taking place in the midst of so many challenges facing us and the whole world should come together and unite its efforts to defeat the challenges that are our principal common enemy. Those of climate change is very politically correct now, Momar. He thought he was playing the game. And uh, international crises such as the capitalist economic decline, the food and water crisis, desertification, terrorism, immigration, piracy, man-made and natural epidemics, and nuclear proliferation. Perhaps influenza H1N1 was a virus created in a laboratory that got out of control, originally being meant as a military weapon. Such challenges also include hypocrisy, poverty, fear, materialism, and immorality. As is known, the United Nations was founded by three or four countries against Germany at the time. The United Nations... Uh, was formed by the nations that joined together against Germany in the Second World War. Those countries formed a body called the Security Council, made its own countries permanent members, and granted them the power of veto. We were not present at that time. The United Nations was shaped in line with those three countries and wanted us to step into shoes originally designed against Germany. That is the real substance of the United Nations when it was founded over 60 years ago. That happened in the absence of some 165 countries at a ratio of 1 to 8. That is, 1 was present and 8 were absent. They created the Charter, of which I have a copy. If one reads the Charter of the United Nations, one finds that the preamble of the Charter differs from its articles. Now, that's very, very, very essentially important because your preamble is setting down the tones and definitions of the words to be used in, in the, the coming articles, the legal articles. He says, how did it come into existence? All those who attended the San Francisco Conference in 1945 participated in creating the preamble, but they left the articles and internal rules of procedures of so-called Security Council to experts, specialists, and interested countries, which were those countries that had established the Security Council and had united against Germany. So Britain, France, Germany, uh, the U.S., and so on. It says, the preamble is very appealing, and no one objects to it, but all the provisions that follow it completely contradict the preamble. We reject such provisions, and we will never uphold them. Uh, They ended with the Second World War. The preamble says that all nations, small or large, are equal. It says, are we equal when it comes to the permanent seats? No, we're not equal. The preamble states in writing that all nations are are equal, whether they are small or large. Do we have the right of veto? Are we equal? The preamble says that we have equal rights, whether we are large or small. This is what is stated and what is agreed to in the preamble, so the veto contradicts the charter. 
The permanent seats uh, contradict the Charter. We neither accept nor recognize the veto. The preamble of the Charter states that armed forces shall not be used save in the common interest. That is a preamble that we agreed to and signed, and we joined the United Nations because we wanted the Charter to reflect that. It says that armed force shall only be used in the common interest of all nations, but what has happened since then? Sixty-five wars have broken out since the establishment of the United Nations and Security Council, sixty-five since their creation, with millions more victims than in the Second World War. Uh, are those wars and the aggression that force uh, that were used in those 65 wars in the common interest of us all? No, they were in the interest of one or three or four countries, but not, not all nations. Uh, then he goes on to talk about where those wars were in the interest of one country or of all nations. He says that flagrantly contradicts the Charter of the United Nations that we signed. Unless we act in accordance with the Charter of the United Nations to which we agreed, we will reject it and not be afraid to speak diplomatically to anyone. Now, uh, nor, now we are talking about the future of the United Nations. There should be no hypocrisy or diplomacy because it concerns important and vital issue of the future of the world. It was hypocrisy that brought about those 65 wars since the establishment of the United Nations. The preamble also states that if armed force is used, it must be a United Nations force. Thus, military intervention by the United Nations, with the joint agreement of the United Nations, not one or two or three countries using armed force. In other words, they all have to agree. The entire United Nations will decide to go to war to maintain international peace and security. Since the establishment of the United Nations in 1945, if there is an act of aggression by one country against another, the entire United Nations should deter and stop that act. If a country, Libya for instance, were to exhibit aggression against France, then the entire organization would respond because France is a sovereign state member of the United Nations and we all share the collective responsibility to protect sovereignty of all nations. However, 65 aggressive wars have taken place without any United Nations action to prevent them. Eight other massive, fierce wars whose victims number some two million have been waged by member states that enjoy veto powers. Those countries that would have us believe they seek to maintain the sovereignty and independence of peoples actually use aggressive force against peoples. I would like to believe that these countries want to work for peace and security in the world and protect peoples. They have instead resorted to aggressive wars and hostile behavior. Enjoying the veto they granted themselves as permanent members of the Security Council, they have initiated wars that have claimed millions of victims. It's interesting too, eh? They used to ridicule uh, the old Bible thumpers. They always said that the, by peace he shall destroy many. And that's why they call themselves peacekeepers. Eh? The principle of non-interference in internal affairs of states is enshrined in the Charter of the United Nations. No country, therefore, has a right to interfere in the affairs of any government, be it democratic or dictatorial, socialist or capitalist, reactionary or progressive. And that is a fact. That's in the Charter. It says, this is a responsibility of each society. It is an internal matter for the people of the country concerned. The senators of Rome once appointed their leader, Julius Caesar, as dictator because it was good for Rome at that time. No one can say of Rome at that time that it gave Caesar the veto. The veto is not mentioned in the charter. We joined the UN because we thought we were equals, only to find one country can object to all the decisions we make. Who gave the permanent members their status in the Security Council? Four of them granted the status to themselves. It's a big, the big four, eh? The only country that we are in this uh, assembly elected uh, to permanent member status in the Security Council is China. 
This was done democratically, but the other seats were imposed upon us undemocratically through a dictatorial procedure carried out against our will, and we should not accept it. Well, I guess that was the last major speech he made at the United Nations, and that's why they got the UN to to supposedly try and uh, implement this war against his country. Uh, as almost a slap in the face, of course, although it is definitely the U.S. and Britain and so on who wanted the war regardless. But the U.N. were along and says, well, we're declaring war for the first time and by passing Congress and parliaments and so on, uh, just to mock Gaddafi, obviously. And it's still failing because at home people are complaining that it didn't go through Congress, etc., and so they're calling it now a NATO action. The NATO, by the way, is just the armed wing of the United Nations. <laughs> so it's all really just plays on words, isn't it? It really plays on words. And Madeleine Albright's given speeches about it because she loves, uh, she's got a seat on, the, on that council at NATO. And she's been well involved for many, many years in having uh, Arabs decimated by their starving them or setting soldiers upon them or whatever. It seems to be her lifelong calling. Anyway, that's what we've got running the world. Everything is hypocrisy and lies, isn't it? Until you look into charters for yourself and you realize it's just like your own government with its constitutions. No one follows it. They make it up as they go along, bypass it, etc. And you've got to to understand, under the guise of law, if they break their own laws or simply go around their own laws, then they are lawless. Understand? They're now lawless. And when you have lawless organizations or governments just making things up as they go along, you're in big, big trouble. And we actually have that. We have private enterprises working with governments as well, and no one elects these private enterprises or or the private scientific associations or the big leaders of foundations or the George Soros types, the new philanthropists who the United Nations says should help to rule the world. We don't elect any of these characters. And also, by the way, None of us get a chance, and no, none of your parents or grandparents had a chance either, to vote about the United Nations. It was simply implemented. And I remember Bill Cooper saying at the time, uh, years ago, that uh, the United Nations is, an, is not a democratic institution. And he said everyone who signed that charter, every leader of every country, uh, had broken uh, their own constitutions and charters. Therefore, they were traitors to their country. Because they never asked the people permission. How can you sign your countries over and give ultimate authority in certain areas, especially war-making or even defending yourself, to an external organization? Hmm? But that's the stuff we're given today to look at. And um, another aside to this, too, is, of course, you all saw the farce as um, the U.S. Army was told told when they went to Iraq to uh, stay a certain distance from the museum. Uh, meanwhile, somebody obviously went in, very high, high clearance with the army, and plundered its artifacts in Iraq. And um, before that all happened, before the war even started, weeks before, uh, documentaries came out in Canada on mainstream television where um, big, you know, um, movers and shakers were taking orders for these artifacts, these artifacts while they were still in the Baghdad Museum. And they showed, they talked to some private collectors across the world who'd already booked what they wanted out of the plunder. That means that there's a very high organization here that can actually work with the Pentagon and the CIA and take orders and make sure these right guys get it. Well, the same things happened 
with Egypt. And, of course, it didn't surprise me at all. Egyptian officials said on Friday that 800 priceless artifacts were still missing after armed robbers raided a warehouse near the canal city of Ismailia in the unrest following a popular revolt. The popular revolt. Now you stop using the propaganda to give us an inventory of the East Kantarak warehouse which housed antiquities from the provinces on the Suez Canal in Sinai has revealed that the threat, theft and damage of a large number of artifacts said Mohammed Abdel Masgud as official with the Supreme Council of Antiquities for North East Egypt. 800 antiquities will, which go back to the Pharaonic, the Roman and Islamic periods are still missing from the warehouse after 293 items were recovered. It said the survey also revealed that several artifacts unearthed by French, American and Polish archaeological teams had also been stolen. Robbers raided several warehouses around the country, including uh, the one in Cairo, world-renowned Egyptian museum, after an uprising that toppled long-time leader Hosni Mubarak uh, gave way to looting and insecurity. Now, these are trained people and the special forces, and they're two folks because someone at a high level in the West gave permission. The last lot of the, of the, um, the follow-up to the documentaries they showed in Canada showed you that most of the stuff was being fenced through Israel, actually to private collectors. This will no doubt be the same. Uh, this is the normal world, eh? This is the normal world. Now, there's a Bill from Canada on the line. Are you there, Bill? Hello? Hello. Yes, who is this? Alan, this is Bill from Canada. Okay, hold on. I'm come back after this break. Hi, folks. We're back, and we're cutting through the matrix, talking to Bill from Canada. Are you there, Bill? Hi, Alan. I'm here. How are you? Not too bad. Yeah. Good. Uh, appreciate your research and all the work you've done. Uh, learned a lot from you. We've got uh, the elections coming up now in Canada, yeah. and I thought it would be a good time to, because they have to come down and touch our hands. And So uh, I was just thinking that uh, it would be a good time to be able to get some information out and perhaps uh, route out some of these people who are, you know, mm-hmm. sort of in their conflicting oath situation yeah. where they That's can't... Right. Uh, That's right. If, if these characters, which they are, of course, members of the Council of Foreign Relations, um, if they've already sworn oaths to uphold another charter, another organization, a fraternity uh, that supersedes any secondary uh, obligation, then they're of no use to the people of Canada. Yeah. Well, exactly. So we should... Uh, now is a good time to hassle them because they... They all have to come out, so I encourage all your listeners in Canada to mm-hmm. get out and do the same. Put some pressure on them, you know, like they've always got the pressure on us. That's right, and if you get to meet them personally, you ask them if they're a member of uh, fraternities and ask them uh, politely which ones they are members of. And um, uh, technically, they should, uh, they should ask you. Sometimes you can find it, too, if you look over uh, different articles in the newspapers and you can find out what they belong to. Yes, and it's got to be done because, uh, as Quigley said, it's the same in Canada, remember, he was referring to Canada too, Britain as well, that they've always put their own presidents and prime ministers in since the late 1800s, and that is true, that is a fact, uh, of all, all parties, that is, so we've got to stop this. Well, we can put a bit of pressure on them, maybe they'll make a mistake or two, and 
show their hand. Like they've got us, had us, and like my whole life has been a lie. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, furious about that, you know. And absolutely. What do? What absolutely. Do? Well, hassle yeah. them back, put a bit of pressure back on. Mm-hmm. And and also too, the other thing you do is don't vote for anybody. Well, that's just it. I mean, really, that the only way you'll see the teeth of the, the real master coming forward is when you'll you find that business will go on as usual under some new system, without a pause, in fact. And uh, But we simply won't have uh, the, the nonsense in the papers with prime ministers walking across the planet making speeches written by advisors. So uh, it'll still go on. Corporations, and, and now, political parties, they're just corporations, aren't they? I mean, they, they are corporations. They yeah. vote for the, the corporate policy. Yeah, the country is a corporation. Every, every country is, a, is one. Overall, collectively, it's one big business. And everyone works for the government, you know, everyone. And it was someone from the government that told me that, from the feds. And um, it's, it's literally a, a registered business. That's all it is. That's what your, your country happens to be. And your job in it is to be like a worker bee and obey and produce, consume and pay taxes and go off to war if they order you to and so on. That's your job. That's not, you don't have any other function. You know? yeah. yeah. Okay, well, let's... Uh, well, anyways, we'll just see if we can't... Uh they're giving them a bit of a hard time that they've been giving us their whole lives. Well, Britain tried that, you know, and for a while they were making some headway where they had to start publishing uh, the names, even of judges who were Masons and so on. And um, for two or three years it was making headway, and eventually the Masonic societies hit back, and and since they already ran the legal system, they uh, got something in there so they wouldn't have to disclose their identities anymore. But there's a lot of folk kept a name of who they all happened to be. <laughs> so that was well, quite I good. Well, I guess that's all we got right now. So Yeah. Okay, well, thanks a lot, Alan. Thanks for calling. From Hamish myself from Ontario, Canada, it's good night to me, your God, or your gods go with you. And James from New York, let me call back Monday, will you? Thank you.